I've been preaching out of the book of Romans. Today, we're going to dive into kind of a, the heart of the matter, which will be found in chapter 3. And uh, I don't know how many I've done, because I actually, I started, I think, with Romans 8, 28. <laughs> then, I, then we did some messages based in Romans 5 of rejoicing in our pressures, our tribulations, and then went back and started. So now we're up to this. But why is this so important? You know, I mean, sometimes we think, well, I just want to read the Gospels, you know, and no offense to the red letter uh, theories, you know, and I love it. I love the red letter, you know, and I, I mean, at times I've read only the red letters, but but do you know, I mean, because sometimes we feel like, well, the Gospels are more authentic, and then Paul just wrote letters, you know, maybe it's his opinion, but we're not sure. You know, I agree with this, I don't agree with that. But I want you, do you know that most of Paul's letters were written before the Gospel according to Mark, which was the first of the Gospels to be written down, was written? that two years after the resurrection, Jesus confronted a demon-possessed, jihadist Jew who was so in bondage to the law that out of his frustration and judgment, he was totally demon-possessed, described as breathing out threatenings and slaughter, that Jesus said, I could use this guy's determination and confronted him in person on the road to Damascus took him to the wilderness and reprogrammed him for a couple of years. And then he was, shortly after that, he was commissioned to take the gospel, give or take, take the gospel to the Gentiles and eat pork chops for the rest of his life. You know, I mean, you know, to, to be, you know, to be all things to all people. Like, so what's so interesting is like, some of our very earliest scriptures, I mean, you know, and there's a little, you know, it's not like we have the exact date. This was published in A.D. 45 by Baker Academic Books, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Now, it was, it's not, it wasn't done that way. These were letters sent out, but some of the very first letters, 1 Corinthians, from which, uh, you know, Pastor Mike was quoting what Jesus had given to Paul. These are really early, early, early scriptures. And so when we study Paul's letters, we're not studying like a second generation revelation. This was cutting edge stuff. Before there were the four gospels, there were these letters. Isn't that wild? We don't think about that because we just think like, well, I got my Bible five years ago. And, uh, I mean, this is a library. <laughs> so, anyway, it's just a little good perspective to, you know, the age we live in. So are you ready to get into Romans? This is the Word of God. Okay. So, and uh, what I'm, you know, the real heart of Romans has to do with the righteousness of God. So I have a title, But Now, because, you know, the, in, in this Paul reveals a great ship. But here's, the, the heart of Romans is the gospel. You know, it, he mentions it in Ro, you know, the very first verses of Romans 1 and concludes the very last verses of Romans 16, mentioning the obedience of faith, which is the fruit of the gospel. But, it, you know, one of the key verses in chapter 1 
or a couple of them is Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to be a proclaimer that there is a new emperor, a new king, and a new kingdom. His name is Jesus, and it's called the kingdom of heaven. That's what proclaiming the gospel wasn't just putting up a tent and, and presenting four spiritual laws. It was proclaiming at, you know, that heaven had entered planet Earth. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation, sets you free, delivers you, heals you. How would Paul know? Because it happened to him. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. <laughs> As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel is, first of all, the term gospel is kind of like, it's a really radical, controversial term at that time. It's what, it, it's the word that was used for the announcing of great victories within the Roman Empire. And Paul was a herald of the, the victory, of the, you know, the finished work of Christ, which is, is finished, but it's not completely expressed, okay? So the gospel is the power of God. And and uh, it sets people free to discover, oh, love is at the center of the universe, not regulation and following rules, hooray. And so, but, so Paul starts there, and then he says, well, you know, I need to explain why the gospel is necessary. So R Romans 1, starting with verse 18, um, and all the way till verse 20 of chapter 3 is kind of a detour, you know, that that mankind fell from love and fell into law and back to grace. Chapter one describes that, that people knowing God refused to honor him or give him thanks and so God gave them, okay, you go your own way. This is the wrath of God. He lets us go our own way. That, that, and he has, his disposition is like, well, they don't want me, so have fun. See how it works for you. And so some of us maybe have had that experience um, with children, or, or maybe some of us were those children who our parents let us go off into the world of wherever we went. Thank God when we come back, okay? But so, so chapter one, you know, just uh, chronicles this descent of a culture that turns its back on God into depravity, into perversion, and into futility. You know, it happens on a personal level, happens on a cultural level. But in chapter two, so he's kind of explaining why Rome was a mess, but chapter two, he, he gets into, he realizes he's writing to Roman Christians, and many of the early Christians came from Jewish backgrounds because Jesus was the Messiah. And so they had inherent, inbuilt things that were both good and bad, and the, the one that, the the real thing that Paul goes after again and again in all his letters is a reliance on because we know the rules and we follow them, we're good. And so this is basically to put chapter two in a nutshell. And, but he's, he's going after the false securities of religious legalistic people. And particularly he's addressing the Jewish issue. Well, how would he know? Because he was the worst of the worst. Romans 2.1, therefore you have no excuse, O man. <laughs> you know, he, make, he makes this point over and over again. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment, you condemn yourself. 
And, and then he says, you don't understand even why God is kind, because the goodness or the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. And so you've, you've, you've despised the riches of his kindness. And he goes on and on and on, and then he, then he tackles like the, their props. He says, well, you could, you know, heritage, how's that? I'm a Jew of the Jew, I'm, you know, I, I'm... I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee of Pharisees. He's got more heritage than any of them. Knowledge doesn't save you. Ability to teach if you can't keep. If you can't stay in love, you can't teach on marriage. You know, that's what he's talking about. They, could, they had the signs, but they didn't have the reality. And so he actually goes into chapter three, still making this case, completing the case, exposing, uh, you know, false reliances. And and he starts with Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage then? Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is circumcision? Much in every way. And he starts, he just really names one, and then then he goes after attacking the false reliance again. To begin with, Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But then he gets into these issues that that within Jewish culture were used to justify hypocrisy. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And, and he goes on and on and on. There's a whole list of these questions. But I'll, I'll just jump to verse nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. And then he pulls out, basically out of the Psalms and a few, few out, of, out of the prophets, a list of plus or minus 10 indictments against the legalists. You know, uh, it starts with, none is righteous, no, not one. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, They're, they both have this. No one understands, no one seeks God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they've all become worthless or useless. No one... <laughs> I remember hearing that from my parents. No one does good, not even one. You know, and he goes on. There's, there's a, a list of about 10 of these things. What's he doing? He's just wiping out their confidence like, I'm good. You know, yeah, yeah, Jesus is great, you know, but I've, I've always, you know, I've always been seeking the Messiah with everything in my whole lifestyle. And, and then he And he says, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why would would this be? Here's what he's after. Verse 19, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And so that term, held accountable, means that liable in a court of law, like like, so all the stuff you have confidence in, none of it's going to stand up when you stand before the throne. And so that applied to the Jewish people, but it really applies to everybody, especially people who think they're better than someone else, like most of us do. I mean, even if you don't think you think that, there's probably some people that you think of that you're better than. Just saying. So uh, unless you're the worst person on earth, and then God wants to heal, heal you and save you, you know, so it, it's all good news. But by the works of the law... In verse 20, he's he's saying, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Zero in his sight. 
whose sight? Jesus' sight. So you might be justified in your own sight. All your friends might go, you're good, you're good. Yeah, I think you're really a great person. Like, I don't know why. But God is saying, yeah, but when you stand before me, I'm not gonna be comparing you with the people around you. You will be compared with my perfect glory, my perfect righteousness. Ah, help God. See, this is actually what the work of the law is, is to make us, the, the law was intended to regulate the people so they didn't die and just become totally degenerate, but also to, to reveal to them their own sinfulness, which would lead them to Christ. The need for, we, I need help, I need a savior. That was the whole purpose of the law. But so anyway, it sounds like bad news, but he's done there now with, with this kind of detour into the, the sin issue, and he comes back to what God has done to, to make provision. And so we get to verse 23, and there's this, or verse 21, sorry, I said 23. It's 321, this little dyslexic moment there, in case you're wondering. But the uh, Romans 323, but now, everybody say now. See, it's like, but it's just, so he's talking about all this kind of like, oh, this is scary. And then he goes, but now, the good news. <laughs> kind of like a good story. First it scares you, and then you're like, oh, whew, we didn't end there. Okay, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there's no distinction. Why? Because all have sinned. Just like it's for all who believe, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short. So there's two problems there, sin and falling shorts, or falling short. That the, okay. The other could be a problem as well. So that's why we have belts, right? Okay, so verse 24, and are justified by his grace as gift <laughs> through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. And there's all these big terms, like what is he talking about? I mean, in this, these verses from 21 to 26 are, are like the heart of his message. And, uh, and so, but when he says, but now, he was signaling, it's a decisive shift, but now it's not like it used to be. And it's, it, so he's, he's, I mean, what he's saying, he says there, now we're discontinuing the former dispensation, and yet there's still continuity with the overall message of the law and the prophets. But when he says now it's apart from the law, in fact, if in the, the the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from, the, the first law is in, with a small letter and the second is with a big letter. And so the first law would be referring to the covenant with Moses, which was made at, you know, because the people were afraid to talk to God and have a personal relationship with him because the mountain was shaking and there was thunder and lightning and fire and smoke. And Moses said, get ready, get ready. We're all gonna meet with God. And, it, and it, they looked at the mountain and felt the earthquake, and they said, Moses, it's too scary. You Tell you what, you go talk to God, come back, tell us whatever he says, we'll do it. And so in that context, he was given the, the whole, all the regulations that come to us as the law of Moses. But the, the overall message, and which 
I mean, sometimes when, when it says the law and prophets, it's just, it, that's a, a term that just means the whole, all the Old Testament scriptures have one message, which is that God keeps his promises and the promise he made to Abraham, he's still keeping even today. And so, but there's a change. So he's saying, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So he's saying, there's a change. We're no longer under the economy of the law. The contract was broken and the law has been replaced by something better. But not the promises, not the overall commitment of God to his people, to the covenant, to the children of Abraham. But amazingly in the gospel, we're now grafted into that. So, so that's the but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, remember back in chapter one, verse 16, where it said that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, right? And then now it's saying the righteousness of God has been manifested, which means it's shown up. It's not just revealed, but it's actually present in creation. So that's the, what manifest means. Okay, it's manifested and it's apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. So it, it's, all, it's consistent, but there's also a change. For, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. So this is this little section. And so, but now signals a new time. And we have a lot of but now verses that are really good news. Romans 6.22, but now you have been set free that you might be slaves to God. But now you have been set free from sin. So we were set free, we were ransomed, which is what the word redemption means. The ransom price was paid and we're no longer kidnapped prisoners of war to sin. This is really good news. <laughs> Even though we all got there of our own volition. <laughs> and, and, or verse Romans 7, verse 6, but now we are released from the law. He's talking about the Mosaic law. Having died to that which held us captive, which was sin. And, and so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So another, this, and I love this, but now in, Ephesians chapter two, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the blood is the issue of, we're gonna get to this big word here in a couple verses, propitiation. We'll talk about that in a moment. Isn't that fascinating? So the righteousness of God, it's not the wrath of God that, that is manifested, it's the righteousness of God. <laughs> And, and so, which is that God is faithful to his nature and his promises. This is a, a real summary statement of what righteousness means. So when his righteousness is in us and we become the righteousness of God, then that nature manifests through us and we're faithful to our promises, help us, Jesus. Okay, so Romans 10, verse three talks about um, a different kinds of righteousness. Romans 10, three says that, in Paul's talking about his own countrymen, you know, 
for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Why were they ignorant? Not because they wanted to be, it just hadn't been revealed to them, okay? Uh, and I love this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, many of us, for our sake, or by, verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made himself to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might, we might become what? Do you know this? righteousness of God. I love this little slide there because it shows that he's sucking all of that sin out of us, becoming sin who knew no sin, infinite capacity, so that we could become something different, an actual manifestation of the righteousness of God. And sometimes I've heard people say, and it seemed like it was more popular 25 years ago or 30 years ago, people say, well, I'm the righteousness of God. Well, you know what? If you are the righteousness of God, you don't have to tell anybody. I mean, you could tell yourself, but when we really need to tell ourselves that we're the righteousness of God is, uh, do we manifest his nature, his goodness, his character? Do we keep our promises? Can people trust us? So then you say, yep, you're just shining like the sun. This is what, that's what he's after, right? Okay, you guys are pretty quiet here, and that's okay. I know your thinking is so deep. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> and then, anyway, this righteousness of God is, you know, it's manifested apart from the law, the temporary Mosaic covenant, but it continues with his promises and his general message. I mean, his first promise he actually made to the serpent, you know, where he said, hey, you know, it seems like you've won, but you haven't, and this woman's gonna have a child, that, like, generations and generations later, and that seed will crush your head. You'll bruise this. So that's called the proto-evangelium, if big fancy word means. It was the first time God even hinted that he already had a solution. Do you know he had a solution that before the foundation of the world, the lamb was already slain, like God had already gone there? Because he inhabits eternity and he can access any point in time. And so, so come on. Shout out Abake. He made time. Sorry, that's speaking in tongues in case you're wondering, what was he saying? This is a spiritual gift, and may God fill you and release it yourself. Okay, and how does this happen? It happens not by works of the law, but it actually comes through faith. It's through faith. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. No distinction. I love this verse because, first of all, it says that this righteous, the, the very character of God is now accessible to us through faith. And sometimes we think faith is like this magic substance. Here's a real ordinary word that explains faith, trust. Like actually, the word for faith and trust in both Hebrew and Greek is, it's the same word. And faithfulness and trustworthiness is the same concept. And so sometimes we go like, well, you know, I just don't know if I have faith. People say, well, do you have faith? And so I don't know if I have faith because we don't often think about it like when we get in our car, like, well, I have faith when I push this button or turn this key, depending on what your car you have, or, you know, do this crank if you're like way, way old and got a, a you know, Model T or something. The, uh, 
that it's going to start and it's going to take me someplace. And we, we have faith all the time. When you get on an airplane, you have faith in the pilot that he's going to not only take off, but also land you safely. Thank you, Jesus. And even if you have to wear a mask for six hours or eight hours across halfway around the globe, you'll be alive when you get there and you'll be really thankful you know, but like if you didn't trust that it was safe, you wouldn't go. Or some people don't trust that it's safe. They take a lot of drugs and they get on the plane and they're like. <laughs> and then they arrive and they go like, hey, I'm still alive, you know. But, it's like, but that's rare. But some people have like a, a real, you know, big anxiety about that kind of thing. So we exercise trust in all kinds of things we do. God is saying, will you trust me that I keep my promises? Will you trust me that all this that you're hearing about Jesus Christ is true, and even if you don't know if it's absolutely true, if you'll trust it to the level that you'll say, Jesus, I don't know if you're there or not, if you're real or not, but if you'll show me, I will follow you. So Jesus, yes, I believe to the best of my ability that you, you know, that somehow that I don't understand you were both God and man and that your death was in my place and that it is sufficient to resolve me from all guilt and uh, would you save me? He loves that. Here's the basic prayer that Jesus, like in his deepest core existence, a God runs to the aid of everyone who cries out, help! Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's literally... That's literally a description of his nature, that he's the one who runs to our aid when we cry for help. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So at the very basis of the universe was this amazing Trinitarian community that I don't know where the idea came from. Maybe they always had it because they lived outside of time, but they... they they decided to create a creation and in the creation there would be a creature that would bear the image and likeness, have reasonable thought, volition, creativity, all these aspects, have a moral awareness of right and wrong and that he would say, you know, they're gonna run into trouble but we got a plan to save him and the lamb, but you know, Jesus, the son, God the son said, I'll be the lamb, I, I'll, I'll be the sacrifice that will purchase them from all their mistakes. And you know, he does it one by one. It's not like, okay, I'll just do it and the whole world will be saved and they'll all, they'll all be good and they'll go to heaven. It doesn't matter how evil they are. Now he said, no, the, here's the deal. They'll, the, it'll be presented and at, this is the power of God unto salvation. This declaration that each person has the capacity to go, you know, I don't even know if I know what it means to believe, but at least, you know, I'm going to say, you know, it would be better for me to, to try it out than to ignore it. Because if it's true, I lose really nothing and gain everything. If it's false, oh, I'll probably be a better person anyway. So yeah, Jesus, show me you're real. I trust you. That was the, that was Rene Pascal who wrote a, he was, he was writing a book for all his arrogant friends when he became a believer in Paris, you know, and so all his friends were philosophers and artists and stuff, so he wrote a, a book which he didn't finish before he died, but it's been published for years called Pensées, The Thoughts 
of Rene Descartes, or not Rene Descartes, uh, Rene Pascal. And there's a lot of French philosophers. It's easy to mix them up. And most people don't know, so you could say the wrong thing. Say, yeah, you know, Fifi did it. You know, they go, ooh, that's so heavy. You know, but anyway, but do you understand? This is a glorious gospel. And no one would have ever imagined it. God planned it before he created the universe. Jesus, help us. Okay, so let, let's get into the treasure chest here quickly. Verse 23 this doesn't sound like treasure. I'm going to start with verse 22. The righteousness of God through, comes through faith that I will trust. That's what I spent the last five minutes describing in some manner. For it, and it's for all who believe. It's not for everybody. It's for all who believe, put their trust. There, and then he says there's no distinction. It's for all who believe. Why would that be important? Because verse 23 tells us, for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. What does it mean? Well, to sin, I mean, this is like people, we don't live in a sin-conscious society. We haven't, you know, because everything that was sin has been, you know, said, well, that's perfectly normal. And, you know, you should need to let people do whatever they want. Unless it's declaring that there's absolute truth, absolute morality, and that the current standards are totally wrong, perverted, and, and warped. And then people will um, shut you down, take you off, censor you, cancel you, and all that stuff. So actually, it's not that friendly, is it? So the, anyway, <laughs> this is for, for all who believe, for all of sin. And what does sin mean? Sin means simply that you're a bad shot and you miss the mark. It's a picture taken from, from uh, archery or from martial practices that when an archer aims at a target and he misses, the term that was used was he sinned. And sometimes we even say, miss, miss, miss. That's what sin means. You miss the mark. So all of sin, would everybody agree you've done something, you know, that you weren't supposed to do? Even though you might say, I'm not a sinner. Oh yeah. Well, did you ever, did you ever say something you shouldn't have said? Did you ever think something you shouldn't have thought? Jesus said, did you ever lust after someone in your heart? Oh, you're guilty of adultery. Did you ever hate somebody? And sort of think, man, it'd be so good if they weren't here. He said, you're guilty of murder. Like, whoa, that's intense. I didn't do anything. No, but you entertained it. And so the, the, uh, what he's saying is everyone has this problem because the wages of sin is death. Okay, but the gift of God is eternal life. Thank you. But so everyone has sinned, and then the second word he uses is fall short. Everybody's done things they shouldn't have done or failed to do something they should have done. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord. Copa mea, copa mea. And, you know, it, that I've done these things. Most grievously sin. But then falling short is something, falling short means you just can't get where you think you want to go. So in California... Uh, in Southern California, there's an island, there's a number of islands off the coast of Southern California, but one of the islands is Santa Catalina Island, and you can see it from quite a bit of the Los Angeles waterfront, but there's a pier in Santa Monica, the Santa Monica Pier, and from the end of the Santa Monica Pier on a really clear day, it looks like it's really close, but actually it's about 26 miles, and I'm not sure if it's exactly, but that's the song, if you remember from the early 60s, all you old-timers, 26 miles across the sea, Santa Catalina's waiting for me, it's the island of romance, and so the, 
Now, you could be an Olympic gold medalist world record holder in the long jump, and you could run down that Santa Monica Pier and take your full challenge, and you wouldn't land more than 50 feet off the end of that pier, not 26 miles. And that's what God is saying. We fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is his full presence, awesome, wondrous, purity, and brilliance. Would you agree that you're not quite that good? See, that's what he's saying. He's saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what Jesus provides. He closes the gap. He says, take my hand, jump off that pier, and then, how did I get here? Miracle, miracle. It's the miracle of redemption. Okay, and we are, verse 24, justified by his grace as a gift. It's a gift. Grace is a gift of God that operates within us that actually sets us free. We're saved by grace. Grace is God giving us a gift of his ability so that we can do what we were created to do, that we can become what we were intended to become, and that we're not crippled by continual sin and continual falling short. This is the grace that saves us. And how do we access this grace? By trusting him. God, give me grace. Shut up. Anybody want some grace? Okay, and how did we get the grace? The gift is given through the redemption in Christ Jesus. Now there's some things. Being justified means that you've been declared innocent in court. He uses a legal term here. He uses a kind of a, a warfare term here, and then he uses a very spiritual picture here. He says, we've been justified by grace. God has, when you put your trust in Jesus, God looks at you and declares you innocent. In all your, uh, you know, every charge is dropped, thrown out of court. The handwriting that was against us was wiped out on the cross. So this is what justified. It's by grace and it's a gift. We can't earn it. It's not because we were especially good. It's because, actually because we realized we weren't especially good. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the word redemption means that the ransom has been paid and you have been set free from the one who kidnapped you, the one who held you a hostage as a prisoner of war. You know, who held this prison? Prisoner, it was sin itself. You say it was the devil, but the devil actually doesn't have the authority to keep you as a hostage. Now, he will definitely visit the sinfulness of your sin and make it seem like it's him, but it's actually sin itself that holds us hostage, and Jesus paid the ransom with his own body and blood. Thank you. And then I love this, verse 25, that the redemption was paid, that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. A propitiation by his blood. What does that mean? It, now, this is a really fancy word. Like, who's ever, do you ever talk like that? Like, hey, how's your propitiation going? Some translations translate it expiation. NIV calls it atoning sacrifice. It is a special word that, that was related to the mercy seat. The Greek word is hilasterion. Interestingly, it, the The English word hilarity, hilarious, is somewhat related to it. So this mercy seat 
was designed so that God could meet with the high priest once a year after all these ritual sacrifices had been made. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would pour out the blood of the sacrifice on this golden cover of the ark. And in the ark was the law that they had broken all year long. You know, and the rod of Aaron, which was authority, which had been defied, and the manna, which was provision, which they complained about. You know, and so in that ark of the testimony was the testimony of their own sinfulness and of God's perfect goodness. And so when the, the high priest would come, he said, I want him to come once a year, put the blood on the mercy seat, the, the propitiation, and then we can talk. And so when God has given us propitiation, it means his sacrifice has done it all and you have access to intimate friendship with God at all times, not because you're great, but because he's great. Woo! Jesus, thank you. Do you understand the mercy of God? Okay, I better hurry up and finish this. Uh, it's received by faith. Again, here's the issue is, do we trust him? It was to show God's righteousness. Why God's righteousness? Because of his divine forbearance. If you remember, I talked about this the last time I spoke. His forbearance was the fact that even though you deserve to be smashed, he didn't smash you. He just said, no, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna exercise justice right now. I'm going to let I'm gonna give them more time. That's what forbearance was. And so this became an accusation against God. Well, God, you know, how could you let that guy get away with it because of his forbearance? And so in his propitiation, this revealed, it shows God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, but they, they were all paid for by Jesus. He said, I'll pay the penalty myself. Do you understand that? Like, this is crazy. Like, God, you not only declared me innocent, let me out of jail free, but you actually invite me into an intimate friendship with you, not because I deserve it, but because Jesus is the propitiation. Thank you, God. To show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, He's just, he, like he satisfied justice on the cross with the blood, sacrifice, but he's also the justifier of the one. It's not just blanket, it's each individual. I, go ahead and stand up. The, uh, the, I mean, isn't this amazing that he invites not just us as a group, but you as an individual into an intimate friendship with him? And... This is, this is so humbling. He finishes the chapter, what becomes of our boasting? We don't have any. Like people go, wow, you're so amazing. How'd you get to be so wonderful? And it's really not false humility to say, I mean, sometimes you can't explain it. You just say, thank you, I'm glad you like it. But we go fall on our knees and say, Jesus, I am such a total jerk. Not because I'm confessing sins, but there is nothing about this that I deserve or have earned. It's your favor and your kindness, and it's the fruit of the, of the sacrifice that Jesus made that has changed everything in my life from frustration and, hum and, 
and just emptiness and futility to meaning and favor and grace. And thank you, God, that somehow you use even me to shine like the sun. You use even me to accidentally say the right things and not fly off the handle and say something stupid. Thank you, God, for your grace that's operating in me. And if we blow it, we just come to him and say, God, I blew it. And he forgives us and he washes us and he says, will you come back into what you're called to? Will you live a life that's worthy of my great salvation? Will you live a life that is a, a lifelong thank you for the price that was paid for your soul. This is what, this is it. We, what becomes of our boasting, it's excluded by the law of faith. It's all by trusting him. Verse 28, we hold that no one, that one is justified by faith apart from the laws of work. And then he asks this question, it concludes the chapter, do we overthrow the law by, by this faith? And he says, no. On the contrary, we uphold or establish the law. We reveal the fact that the law was perfect and it led us to Christ because we couldn't do it ourselves. And now we've come to him and he's given us, this is his greatest desire, God. So here's what I, I mean, first, if you've never, I, I don't wanna say never, I wanna say if you're not living in communion with Jesus, this would be a good day for you to come forward, fall on your knees while this revelation is on you of how great it is and say, God, I know if you're already, you would already tell people are you're saved, you've been born again, come and just say, God, never keep, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a cleansing fountain flows from Calvary's mountain. I, God, have mercy on us. Just so if, if, you, if you feel that need, you can come now. You don't have to be so polite and wait until it's all over. It's not out of order. Isn't he good? I can feel his presence here. There, I mean, his presence is here to heal, deliver, and save. And if you have things you need, to, to lay at his feet, he's present here. This is a wonderful day to say, God, I believe. I believe, help me to walk in the fullness of it every day. This is what Paul prayed, Romans 3, that I count everything else but lost just to know him, to know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, that I would even come to a place where I've obtained to the fullness of the potential uh, that is in the resurrection. He wasn't saying that he was worried he wouldn't be resurrected in the last day. He's saying, I want to live in that. So I just would challenge you and say that, you know, he, he hears our cries. He gives us help. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your presence and this holiness. I pray that it would, that Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with this very nature of God, that we would be the walking temples of the Holy Spirit, that you would live in us with all the same dynamic that you dwell in heaven. Who can understand this? That the blood of Jesus would be applied to us, that it would be flowing through our 
veins and in our hearts that, that we would have supernatural joy. I pray that we would shine like the sun, that there would be your presence, that we would walk into places as a mercy seat, <laughs> that we would, be the propi- we would be hosting the propitiation in our own life, that we would carry this justification, that this redemption, that we would not let one thing that God, Jesus has delivered fall back into captivity. God, in Jesus' name, would, just put your hands on your heart and say, Jesus, dwell richly in my heart. Let your word speak to me. Let your blood wash me on, as a cleansing fountain. God, break off every snare, every hook, every weight of sin that would bring me into captivity. That I would shine like the sun and bring glory to my Father. In Jesus' name. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. Sorry, I... I know I ran over, and that just means if you have little ones, go quickly, fall on your knees, tell those nursery workers how awesome they are, and you, then you could come back with your kids, and they'll be so happy to see you. The rest of you, just c- carry good news. Be the good news. Be the ambassadors of Christ. God bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you. (laughs) Be gracious to you. Hear your prayers and may his peace be upon you. Amen, amen.